0: Through the book of 1 Peter. And we're on 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 11 through 12. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and take it out. If you want to use one of the Pew Bibles, 1 um, Peter 2, verses 11 through 12. And last week, Jonathan unpacked for us the two verses preceding this. And we learned from those verses that. The church as the people of God have a unique identity that that's not because of anything that we've done it's not because of our accomplishments it's not because of anything meritorious in us but it's because that we belong to God because we are loved by him that he has adopted us into his family and the purpose of that is 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 yes to glorify him but the purpose of that is also for us to proclaim and display his glory of the world and i got i was so excited after i was pumped after last week's sermon that's an amazing truth that's something that gets me really excited and i know um when i was in college i came to faith when i, when I was a freshman and, and that truth that, that that jonathan unpacked last week w- was something that got me so excited every single day I, I i had come to faith i'd seen my life transformed by by Jesus, and and and. It was amazing. I wanted everybody to, to, to know what, what I had discovered. I wanted everybody to know. And, and so, so much of, of, of my activity centered around trying to introduce my doormates and, 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 and the people in my classes to, to, to Jesus. And, and the main venue, the main vehicle through which that happened was the Christian club on campus, right? And so every Friday night, we would get together in one of the lecture halls And we'd invite speakers to come to campus, and there would be um, worship, and and, and usually we'd go out afterwards and get bubble tea or something off campus. It it, it was great. It was amazing. Friday night's Christian club, right? And every single week, I would invite one of my doormates to Christian club. And every single week, they didn't come. (laughs) They would give me an excuse, you know, yeah, I'm busy. Uh, I'm not busy, but if you want to hang out after Christian Club, we could maybe do something afterwards. Um, but I don't think I'm going to go. And so I remember every single week inviting them, just feeling, oh, man, disappointed. Like, I, I want them to encounter Jesus. I want them to, to know this God that's transformed my life, to hear this news that's transformed my life. I wish they would come with me to Christian Club. Right? And then I remember um, our, our Christian Club did this big outreach on campus. Um, and it was uh, to to raise awareness um, about human trafficking and we invited everybody on campus there many clubs participated in it and um, uh, for for those of you guys who don't know um, this was particularly true in 2010 but the highest form of art that any Christian club knows is a slam poem it's the it's the highest form of art for Christian clubs I don't know why like Maybe it's like, oh well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but but here's this cool slam poem, and like you're gonna think differently of me after this, right? And so and so I actually uh, prepared a slam poem for this event, and I'm gonna perform it for you guys right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but um, but but I remember I prepared this poem, and, and I I I like read it to my roommate, and uh, and he said, dude, that was amazing. That was so good. And I was like. Oh, no, that's awesome. So, so you'll, you'll come out to this event. He's like, no, but if we film that and put it on YouTube, I bet you can make a lot of money from that. I was like, no, that's not the point, man. I don't want you to come to this event. Um, but all of this inviting, it all culminated at this big retreat that happened um, at the end of my last year in college. And at this retreat in upstate New York, it's a really amazing club. There's water skiing there's parasailing there's those basketball hoops that are like eight feet so like anyone could dunk i know you could dunk on any basketball hoop but for us that are shorter we could jump up and and dunk like free free cookies free ice cream throughout the whole week and someone generously gave our christian club a a a gift a gift so that any non-christian that we invited to this event could go for free so they gave thousands of dollars and so I was like, this is it. And so I, I you know, went to everyone in my dorm, and I was like, there's going to be parasailing. There's going to be small basketball hoops that you can dunk on. There's going to be cookies. It's going to be awesome. Would you guys come with me to this retreat? I must have asked like 50 people. And praise God, five people that weren't a Christian came to, came to this retreat. And so, you know, that was, that was really great. That was a great success. But I just want you to think about this for a second. This was something that frustrated me, right, so much. So I had this burden for for my friends to, to know Jesus, and so often I would get rejected. It took parasailing, ice cream, cookies, free, trip, just for me to bat 100 and get 10% of the people I asked to come to this Christian event, right? And so I... If I had to guess, I'm sure some of you feel perhaps maybe the same burden, the same tension, the same frustration that I felt in college and I still feel today. And that's, you, you guys have coworkers, friends, family members that don't know Jesus, that don't know this gospel, this good news. And, and, and in, in your heart of hearts, you're thinking, man, if I could just get them to come, Chris Tomlin's going to be in town, if I could just get them to come to this concert, or, or if I could just get them to come to church and hear a sermon, or, you know, if I could just get them to come to this event, there's going to be this great speaker, then they'll hear the message, they'll have a powerful worship experience, and then they'll come to know Jesus too, right? And, 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 and you just get shot down, you know, you know? People have yeah, I'm busy on Sunday, football season started, I'm not busy, but let's hang out after church and watch football. Like, like they have, you know, it, it's, I'm sure you're just as potentially unsuccessful as I am in your invitation. And I think that tension, that burden, that difficulty that, um, that I experienced, that you guys experienced, um, it's real. And frankly, we have a problem, right? Because I know in college and, and to this day, you know, I'm thinking, look, I believe eternity exists, right? And I believe that all of us are going to spend somewhere for eternity, I believe that the world, is, I see the hurt, the brokenness in the world. And, and, and I know that this gospel could heal. And yet, if I want to see a hundred, I want to see everybody come to know Jesus, right? Then um, I have a problem, right? Because people are not, people are rejecting my invitation, you know, et cetera, as, I, as I've displayed, right? And so um, this model. This idea, this missional impulse that we have, and I'm going to get a little sociological with you guys, that, that, that we have in our culture, in our church culture, where we invite people to events and hope that they will encounter God at these events or at, church, at a church service or something, it's actually something that's actually relatively new in church history, only the last couple of hundred years. Have, have People thought, if I want the people in my life to encounter God, I've got to bring them to, to an event. And what I wish someone had told me or explained to me or sat me down and broke down for me in college was that this, this kind of impulse that Christians have, oh, I'm going to bring people to this awesome service and, and they're going to encounter God. It, I, wish, I wish someone would explain to me that, that for most of church history, and if you see the places around the world where the gospel is really spreading, that's not the way that it happens. What do I mean by that? Well, this, this model, let's call it an attractional model where you attract people to a church event, religious sociologists have, have done research, and they've said if you if you went across the United States and you polled everyone, would they come to an event like this on a weekly basis long enough to where they would come to faith? Right? Only thirty to forty percent of people would a, would that actually be appealing to? Would actually like like agree to that? Right? Now that's pretty good. That's forty percent of three hundred million. That's amazing. That's that's enough to to probably fill up a lot of church buildings and put on a lot of great events, right? But I know that number is lower in New York City. And secondly, um, frankly for me, I don't want to just see 30% of the people I know believe in Jesus. I want to see all of them. And so what about that other 60%, right? And so we have a problem. We have a problem, right? That means if we're going to see those people come to faith, we need to look back to, to these great movements in church history. We need to look back to, to the book of Acts. How did, how did it happen that, that the church in the first century went from less than 1% of the Roman Empire to 50% of the Roman Empire in just three centuries? It didn't happen because people were drawn to events. It happened because the church, outside of the four walls of the religious gathering, so to speak, so displayed the gospel in their lives that although the people in their lives, although the the people around them, although the society around them were skeptical, although they thought their message was foolish, although they thought it was difficult to believe, although they thought it didn't make sense, they were so attracted to the way that they lived out the gospel that they were willing to give it a hearing, that they were willing to dialogue, that they were curious enough to say, that person seems crazy, but I want what they have. Long enough to where they actually did get to hear the gospel, receive it, and then be welcomed in to the gathering. Right? That's, that's just the reality. And so, and so frankly, maybe 50 years ago, 70 years ago, 100 years ago, when, when this model of church worked and was prevalent and everybody you knew went to a religious service, so I'm just going to invite you to my church, you come to my church. M- maybe that worked. But in, in what I found in 2010, at a very secular college, that didn't work. And in 2019, I bet for most of the context that we're in, it's not going to work. And so something's got, something has to change. And what that means is that for all of us, not just the people that get paid to do it, but for all of us, we are on the front lines of ministry. And if people, if we're going to see the gospel break loose in our world, It's not going to happen necessarily. It might. I'm not telling you don't invite, but what I'm I'm saying is it primarily is going to happen in the break rooms, classrooms, living rooms that you occupy the other six days of the week. That's where it's going to happen. And so that's kind of scary. That's kind of a tough pill to swallow. That's kind of hard to accept. But I think it provides us exciting, exciting alternatives exciting, exciting opportunities to see God move in ways that are much bigger than we could ever expect, right? And what that also means, and what Peter is going to break down for us in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, and this is my main point, that the way that we live our lives communicates who God is. We need to process, and this passage really clearly communicates to us that that the way that we live our lives communicates who God is to other people, right? That's what Peter is going to explain to us. And that's something that we need to process and recognize if everything that I just said is even partially true. The gospel is going to be communicated through the way that we live our lives, through the relationships that we have. Now, look, you might not grant anything that I just said. But the fact of the matter is, is that in the first century, in the audience that Peter was writing to, this was the truth. This was the truth. This was just the way that it was, right? People were hostile to the gospel and they were not coming to any type of event. The gospel was being spread through relationships and through the lives, the other six days of the week that people were living, right? And so what do we need to um, be mindful of? If it's true, that the way that we live our lives communicates who God is. Well, then, what do we need to be mindful of? What 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 needs to be true about Christians? Um, well, I have three points. First, we need to be personally consistent. Secondly, we need to be publicly different. And third, we need to believe that the gospel is sufficient. I'm not a rapper. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, it rhymes. That's yeah. That's um. So. First, personally consistent. Okay, so we're starting off. I'm going to read the full passage, and then I'm going to focus in on this first verse. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so first point, we're going to be focusing on that first verse. And to understand this, we kind of need to process what, what exactly is Peter saying here. He's calling the Christians in 1 Peter sojourners and exiles. What does that mean? Why does he say that? Well, this is something which, this is a phrase which we've seen in, in other parts of Peter, and we'll see it again. But it's this language that Peter uses to talk about Christians. And it, and it really focuses on the reality that the moment that you become a Christian, the moment that you begin following Jesus, your allegiance changes. No matter where you are, no matter what your nationality is, no matter what your standing in society is, your allegiance changes. And, and, the, and the priority in your life of your allegiance and your identity is now that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so the, you should expect that the world around you, on, a, on a every single day basis, is going to be different. The world around you is going to be different than the spirit of God that lives inside you. The world around you is going to live differently than the, than the kingdom of God calls you to live. right? And so therefore, you are a sojourner, and an exile. You are a citizen first of God's kingdom, and then your other identities, your ethnicity, your nation of origin, your job, your standing in society, all these things, important things, but all of them are second, third, fourth to your identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God, sojourners and exiles. And so the second thing that he says is, as sojourners and exiles, you should abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So what does that mean? What are the passions of the flesh? Well, I think a good blanket phrase, um, to, to kind of sum this up is just any desires that we have that contradict with God's will and word. Right? The passions of the flesh. So so you can list this off. This is this is a statement which you'd expect to see in the Bible. Lust, greed, envy, bitterness right? But when we choose to put our desires above God's will for us, if those things contradict, we are giving in to the passions of the flesh. And Peter is saying, you need to abstain from that. He's calling them to abstain from that. Right? So, the question that I've asked when I saw this verse, and the question that you should ask is, what is the connection between the audience being sojourners and exiles and the call for Peter that Peter calls them to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against their soul. Why are those two things in the same sentence? Because Peter's connecting them. He, he's saying, as sojourners and exiles, because you were sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. What is the logic there? Why are those two things in the same sentence? And to illustrate why I believe Peter is, is saying this, um, you know, I'm just going to talk about kind of the difficulty that I often have, the thing I'm least comfortable about, about traveling out of the country, right? Every time I travel out of the country, the thing that I'm most insecure about is the fact that when I encounter people, I'm, I'm really nervous and conscious of the fact that they're not just judging me. My behavior, my actions, they're also judging the place I come from, right? I remember the first time I went to Montreal, the first time I left the country was when I went to Montreal, sorry. And um, I remember going to Montreal, I was 20, and I went there for a weekend trip with my friend, and I remember being so self-conscious the whole time. You know, going to the grocery store, and, and they're speaking in French, and I'm like, oh, I don't understand French. And I'm just thinking, these people think I'm a stupid American, and I don't—I can only speak one like, like, and, um And just being so self-conscious that the entire time, people were judging, not just me, but I was I was repping where I was coming from, right? And a lot of you have a- actually were born in other countries, and you, and you know well that experience of of coming to the country and and, not, and feeling like I'm not just representing myself. In a lot of ways, people are, are making judgments for better or worse about where I come from, right? And and that's kind of just a a reality, whether we like it or not. And so, in the same way, what Peter's saying here is that hey, if your passport is stamped, citizen of the kingdom of God, right, then the way that you live your lives doesn't just reflect on you, it reflects on the kingdom that you have allegiance to. It reflects on the God that you worship. The way that you live communicates who God is. People are going to judge who God is based off of the way that we live our lives. And so when it comes to these so-called passions of the flesh that Peter highlights, look, I'll tell you this much. Before I I became a Christian, I didn't know much about the Bible, but I I knew there was ten commandments, right, that that these Christians really thought were important. And I also knew that the only other thing I knew was that Christians believe that physical intimacy is for marriage, right? That was like all I was working with when I became a Christian, right? But I knew that. I never read the Bible, but I knew that. And, and, and to be honest, the people in our lives, even if they've never read the Bible, even if they've never been to church, they know to a certain degree about the ethics that we claim to behold because we are Christians, right? And if what I said in the introduction is true, in order for people to encounter God, we're going to have to let them into our lives. They're going to have to get to know us. And if they begin to see inconsistencies about our conduct, about the way that we treat people, about our personal lives, that we are giving in to these, these passions of the flesh that Peter talks about, we lose credibility in our witness. We lose a hearing, whether we like it or not. That's, 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 just, that's just the way it is. But it's more than just us breaking a code of ethics that people that don't follow Jesus know that, that Jesus' followers are supposed to hold to what do our lives communicate about the reality of who God is? When I am at work and I'm nice to someone when I'm speaking to them, but then they leave the room and I gossip about them. I'm communicating to the people in the room that I don't believe God is in the room right now. When I'm wrong, and I fail to forgive, or I fail to reconcile, and it's just obvious, and I hold bitterness and, 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 and judgment, I communicate that I don't believe God is a just judge, and I need to take vengeance into my own hands. Or I communicate that the forgiveness that I was given is not really that big of a deal. It's not really this transformative grace that I sing about. When I'm greedy or stingy, When I keep to myself or or if I'm harsh in my dealings, perhaps in business or, or, or with other people, I communicate that I don't believe God will provide and that he's not a provider. And so here, Peter is highlighting this truth, which in a lot of ways is an uncomfortable truth, that the way that we live our lives communicates who God is. The, the truth is is that right now in this period of history in this place and time the American church has the best events that the church has ever seen we have the best music production, the best lights at some, some of the churches that we have and, and these big events, these gatherings I remember I, I went to an event uh, in Atlanta called Passion and I was in an arena a football arena where the Atlanta Falcons play every single week in fact one year, they, they made the playoffs, and they had to move Passion. But anyway, um, uh, best best musical production you will ever see at Passion. 50,000 people filling up a football arena. We are at the peak of putting on events in church history. But when it comes to the church living out the Sermon on the Mount, when it comes to the church actually following the ethics and the love and the reconciliation that Jesus calls us to. How are we doing? What witness are we displaying to the world? And so we should not be surprised if we see the church in decline, even if we have these amazing events, if the church isn't living out and reflecting who God is in the way that we live our lives. We shouldn't be surprised if the next generation leaves the church, if they don't see their parents and their family living out the gospel in the way that they interact with each other, in the way that they conduct their lives. It doesn't matter how great of of a youth group event you could put on. It doesn't matter how great of a concert. It doesn't matter how great of a speaker. It doesn't matter how great apologetics are. If the church isn't conducting itself like the body of Christ, it's not, we're not going to see people encounter God in a powerful way. Now, this isn't a call for us to be fake. This is a call for us to be consistent. We have to be vulnerable. And I've, I've said this before in messages you know, I know you've heard, this is a very popular phrase, but the church isn't a club for good people. It's a hospital for the sick. It's a hospital for the broken, right? And I believe that. And so I don't want you to hear me communicating that I'm saying be perfect. I'm not communicating to you that, that you need to f- fix yourself, right? But if that's true, if it's a hospital for the sick, and I'm a sick person, and I'm looking for a hospital, and this hospital is just quarantining its sick people and and they're terminally ill and they're just dying left and right or they're not getting better. I'm not going to that hospital. And so in the hospital, are we taking the medicine of God's grace? Are we taking the medicine of prayer and scripture? Are we rehabilitating each other? Now, so far, this may sound like doom and gloom, but, but I think this, Peter's trying to encourage them. This is a great encouragement, and we'll, 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 we'll expound on this in the next verse, but you may not be able to articulate the gospel in a, in a beautiful, articulate way. You may not feel confident in that yet. You oh. may not feel like, like you understand apologetics so well that any question you get answered you'll have a great answer to, right? But you could pray. You could read scripture. You can invite people into your life as accountability. And what Peter's about to say in the next verse is that when those things happen and we reflect Jesus' character, people will encounter God. The next point is that the church is to be publicly different. If how we live our lives communicates to people who God is, then the church must be publicly different. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here Peter is laying out a giving, in that middle part, that... It's just the truth that if you're a follower of Jesus, to a certain extent, you are going to be ostracized. It's just, it's not an if, but it's a when. When they speak against you as evildoers. And we shouldn't be surprised at this. Because this was the reality for Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, people were confounded by him. And they had polarizing reactions. You know, I I think about in John 7 when he's conversing with his brothers and, 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 and they don't even believe in him and they, and they challenge him and they say, you know, why don't you go out in public and preach, go down to the Feast of Tabernacles and they, they didn't understand. They were confused by his identity but then when he finally does go, we see the crowds. Some people are saying, oh, he's, he's a good man, he's a healer. Other people are saying, he's a bad person, his teachings are bad, stay away from him, right? Everywhere Jesus went, there was a reaction, there was a response. And a lot of the times, it wasn't a positive response. But we see in that last part that some people will see your good deeds and glorify God. And I guess the question would be, is that is is there a response to your life with the people that know you because you're a Jesus follower? Is the degree to which you are following Jesus is the degree to which people will respond to you in a polarizing way. Peter lays this out, it happened to Jesus. And so, are our lives causing people to, to ask questions? This person, their beliefs, I don't, kind of kind of offensive, but, but the way that they love, I, I, can't, I can't put two and two together with them, right? Or this person, something's different about them, but, 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 but they're also kind of humble and I can relate to them, right? Our lives as Christians should be confounding, should cause people to ask questions, and there will be a response. So there will be intrigue, but there will be pushback. And, and, and frankly, that part right there, that when they speak against you as evildoers, the inevitability of that, the reality of that as a Jesus follower is something that's one of my least favorite things about following Jesus, It's frustrating. And, and there's some things, which i can't relate you know i don't know what it's like to be the only christian in my workspace and to come to work and just be like oh my gosh like what are people going to think if i don't enter into that conversation with with them or what are people going to what if someone asks me a question about my faith and they ask me a tough question that's awkward at work i can't relate to that when i show up at work it's a contest between me jonathan and ajay as to who could be the best christian we're keeping score on who's holding doors for people, saying bless you when they sneeze. Like, it's amazing. Just kidding. But, um, but one thing that I deal with that y'all don't have to deal with is the number one small talk question in New York is, what do you do for a living? And every time I'm at a birthday party, someone's like, oh, 10, 15 seconds in, oh, what do you do for a living? And in slow motion, I'm a pastor. And I can see their, their countenance drop. Oh, I think my my wife's calling me. (laughs) And, you know, and I just want to have a normal conversation sometimes. I'm in a cafe, and I meet someone, and we are talking, and then it gets to that. And it's like, in real time, I can see whether or not this conversation is about to end in 10 seconds or go somewhere nice. But that's just the reality. That's just the reality about being a Jesus follower. And it's tough. It's difficult. But, It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for people to ask questions. It's an opportunity, frankly, for people to, for us to change people's minds about what they think about what a Christian is. Because I I know there's a lot of people in our lives, we're the only Jesus follower that they've had a serious relationship. And you have an opportunity in that. As as, as tough as that might be, to, to feel the pressure of getting tough questions or feeling judged or whatever, you have an opportunity to change the narrative for them. And, and I think about this, I think about the gist of what Peter is saying, is that, look, people will stumble, but let them stumble because of the gospel. I think about one of my friends that, that leads worship, and he says, every time I lead worship, I want there to be no distractions. You know, I, I want everything to go smoothly. Not, not for the sake of production, but if people are going to reject our worship, I want it to just be because of the gospel. You know, and, and, and you know, we think about this when we're preaching, too. You know, I don't want someone to stumble when they hear a sermon because of my opinion. I want them to stumble because of the gospel, right? And so here's Peter's saying, look, if, if someone's going to stumble because of your life, let it be because of the gospel. Don't let it be because of your opinions. Don't let it be because you are, that, you know, your opinions that are secondary to the gospel. Don't let it be because of, of, of your, your lifestyle being contrary to the gospel, right? Live an honorable life So that even if you are accused because of the gospel, people will see that that you are still reflecting who Jesus is. And the truth is, and and I'm going to give you two examples in church history, but when our lives are publicly different, when people who are hungry for hope, for dignity, for meaning, for purpose, when they see something different in the lifestyle of the people of the church, Some will glorify God. Some will see our good deeds and glorify God. Some will see our good deeds and and, and it will turn them to eternal life. Just thinking of two examples of this. The first um, is, you know, if if you look at history in in the first century in the Roman Empire, it it was not a good place. Um, Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start with this. If you look at the early church, some church historians will say that in the first century or two of the church, the church was something like seventy percent women. It was it was overwhelmingly filled with. It was very attractive to, to women in the Roman in the Roman Empire in the first century. Why was that? Well, in the Roman century, it it was it was a very terrible place to be a woman. If, if you just look at History and the culture in Rome at that time, really any male could privilege themselves and demand physical relations from any female that was in a lower class and and many men took advantage of this oftentimes outside of their their marriage and then all of a sudden here comes Paul, here comes 1 Corinthians seven and Paul. Tells the church and proclaims this very countercultural thing in the fir- in first century Rome that that the physical relations of a male belong to his wife exclusively, and all of a sudden you see this idea of consent develop, and that was extremely attractive because these women that were that were marginalized, that were seen as as, as subhuman as. as and things to just be objectified, saw the church, and saw how they treated women as if they were made in the image of God. And this idea would, would, was just spreading of this dignity. And, and there's no... The church grew. And, and a large portion of that, you know, church historians would say was, was because of that. Because the church lived differently. People glorify God. The second example, and I have this quote, is from uh, this emperor... In the third century, Julian the Apostate. What a lame sub name, right? It's like you could you could have eh, Julian the Great. No, it's Julian the Apostate. Why was he Julian the Apostate? Well, Ju- at this time in the third century, um, the gospel was actually really taking off, and and it was it was it was it was a, it was a movement, right? And and emperors were beginning to maybe become a little bit more lenient, but here comes Julian. He wants to stamp out this movement. Um, and so he was very harsh and critical of the Christian church. As the, sorry, the 4th century, so the 300. And so, uh, the Roman Emperor Julian, writing in the 4th century, regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. And this is interesting. Just a sidebar, he, he referred to the Christians as atheists because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. But here's the quote. He said, Atheism, i.e. the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. And what Julian was saying here was that in this time, in this space, people were so following Jesus' initiative for the poor. People were so caring for the vulnerable that people were leaving their their Roman gods and their Roman culture and coming to the church because of how attractive their lives were. They saw their good deeds and they glorified God because of it. And so if the church is going to see people who are far from God encounter God, it's going to take us living a publicly different life than the alternatives that the culture offers. Some people will reject us, but over the long haul, the way that we live will communicate who God is. And some people will be intrigued and respond and glorify God. This is really, really powerful for us. Because what this means is that all of these small details of our life matter for eternity. They matter to a world which is very, very hungry for the, God, for the, for the hope, for the truth of, that the gospel offers, for the hope that the gospel offers. And so, once again, what does our life communicate about God who he is. When people see that in crisis we aren't shaken and we're confident, it communicates to a world that's hungry for hope that there is a hope in the gospel that's better than anything in this world and that can't be shaken. When we love our neighbor, in fact when we love our enemy, it communicates to a world that's divided and hungry for justice, that the gospel offers a justice program far, that far outweighs anything the world can offer. When we're unfazed by criticism, we communicate to a world that, has, that offers such fragile identities that the gospel offers an identity that is secure in his love. when we live our lives filled with excitement and purpose for what God has for us, we communicate to a world that is hungry for meaning, that there is a meaning to life. It's found in Jesus. We're sojourners and exiles. The book of Hebrews in uh, chapter 11 Um, communicates this idea, and it talks about um, all of these legendary people in Scripture, so to speak, of faith. So it goes through the Old Testament, and it talks about all these people that lived lives of of just pure faith to God. And it, it says this in summarizing their journey. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Sorry, I'm on verses 13 and 16 if you want to write this down. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. Uh, I'll start again. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They were different. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God has prepared a city for us. We are citizens of that city. We are citizens of his kingdom. And when people see that we are living for that kingdom, many of them are going to look at you and think you are foolish because it's foreign and it's alien. But for a world that is hungry for hope and meaning and satisfaction, for a world that is hungry for love, some people are going to... It's The way that we travel this journey... Is going to communicate where we are going and some people are going to see that and want to follow and so what are we communicating about our journey journey on a daily basis i just think about how you know I, i used to go to florida on vacation and my mom is afraid of flying and so we would drive to florida when we would go down there and i have cousins in florida I was going to a really great place. There was a condo that my dad would do this thing where he would get a, he would, it was like a timeshare, and like if you sampled the condo for a week and took a tour for three hours, you'd get like a 75% discount, so my dad would just do it again and again with no intent of really getting the timeshare. But regardless, we'd have a nice uh, discount vacation, and we would, we would go to Disney and Universal. It was a great place that I was traveling to. But as a 12-year-old driving to Florida, there were moments where I would get very restless. You get to about Virginia, North Carolina. It's not that fun anymore. And so I'd be getting grumpy. I was my feet. We'd get out to go to the Waffle House. And if someone saw me in that moment, they would be like, I do not want to go where that kid is going. He looks very upset. I didn't look like I was going to Disney World. <laughs> In the same way as Christians don't, don't we communicate that same thing when, when, our, when, when trials come and we take our eyes off of Him and we, commu- we communicate? You know, I, I've heard I've heard someone say this, and I, I think it's some kind of a cheap shot, but honestly, I think there is some credit to it. You know, I've heard people say, you know, if, 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 if heaven's going to be filled with these Christians, I definitely don't want to go to heaven. And it, you know, to a certain degree. I I think there's some credence to that. Are we living a life that makes people want to follow the same Jesus we follow? Or are we at least getting people to ask questions about it? And so, this is a great opportunity that Peter presents to us. He says that if, if we so live our lives in a way where we're following Jesus, that that some people are going to glorify God on the day of meditation. That's 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 amazing. And so, you may hear this, and this may be, um, this may be a burden. This may be a lot of pressure. Oh my gosh! If I cut someone off, they're, they're going to think God is awful, and that's why I don't have Christian bumper, bumper stickers because I'm not good enough with a driver. But. Um, this, this is a lot of pressure if we're doing it on our own. But the truth is, is that we fall. Sometimes we don't abstain from the passions of the flesh. Sometimes we live a life that doesn't display this gospel. And we fall short. But there was one. There was one who did abstain from the passions of this world. There was one who lived fully for this kingdom at every single moment there was one who, even though he was falsely accused, even though they spoke of him as an evildoer, even though he was given a false trial and arrested and thrown on a cross on a Roman execution device, that in front of the Gentiles they did glorify God it said you remember mark 15 the Centurion that put him on the cross mark 15 10 and 11 it says and when the Centurion when when he stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died he said surely this man was the Son of God he saw Jesus on that cross and and and, and by, through 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 the glory that Jesus gave off in the crucifixion. This Gentile who spoke falsely, who spoke evilly about Jesus, who put him on that cross, glorified God. And that's the Jesus that we follow. That's the Jesus who's going to give us the power to do this. And on that cross, he died for not not just a Roman execution, but, but he died for those times that we fall short. He died for those times when we, we failed to abstain from the passions of the flesh and def- defame the name of God. His name was defamed on, ho- on our behalf on the cross. And his resurrection shows us that we have a power to actually live this out in him. When his spirit fills us, when we, by faith, begin to follow him, just like those folks in Hebrews 11... We have the power in us in Jesus for people to see God through the normal nine to five of our lives. The truth is, is that if we are going to engage our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at a time, just the reality of it is, is that it's going to happen primarily outside of these church walls. People are going to be engaged with Jesus' love outside of the church. As I said, in the break room, in our classrooms, in our living rooms. And as those relationships develop, what are we communicating about God through the way that we live our lives? There's great hope in the fact that in that, Some people will see our lives and glorify God. That's a great truth. That gives me so much purpose. That gives me so much purpose because, you know, and I'll call Charles Charles and the worship team up. I just think this is, um, this is, this is it. This, like, like this, this is our purpose in our everyday life. This is, this is such a great purpose that we could ask for. You know, I think about, um, when, uh, when Derek Jeter retired um, and Hall of Fame shortstop and, and, and Michael Kay, who's the announcer for the Yankees, was uh, reflecting on, on just his kind of like purpose in this narrative of this great historic athlete retiring and the career that he had. And he said, you know, I, I heard this on the radio and I couldn't believe it. He said, you know, this whole time I was really just reflect, refracting the glory of a legendary player. And I just thought, man, that's, that's being a Christian, reflect, refracting the glory, not of Derek Jeter, but reflecting, refracting the glory of Jesus Christ. Michael Kay's purpose in announcing those Yankee games, as boring as that sounds, to just announce nine innings of baseball, right, his purpose was, he was there to reflect, refract and reflect the glory of, of, of these tremendous efforts. And in the same way, would you go out this week and reflect the glory of a living God? i ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads as we pray. Father God, we just come before you. And Lord, this is a task which you have given to all Christians. The moment that we follow Jesus, we're on mission. The moment that we follow you, we now carry a citizenship in your kingdom and we reflect who you are, to a world that is hungry and in need of salvation. And Lord, with so big of a task, we we fall short. But God, we pray that we would receive your grace on a daily basis to take hold of it by faith. And that you would give us the humility to walk, knowing that we are not better than anyone else. We are not better than our coworkers or our classmates or our family that that don't follow you or we are in need of the cross just as much as them. But would we walk with a confidence knowing that we are fully known and fully loved in the gospel? Would we walk with a purpose knowing that our lives matter? They matter because you love us. Lord, in processing that, in living that outward, would would we would we have the privilege of seeing people who are far from you come to know you? Lord, would you use us for such a purpose? Would you spend us, would you pour us out for such a purpose? In the same way Jesus was poured out for us. Lord, would we reflect Jesus who Not live for himself, but gave his life up as a ransom for many. Lord, would we reflect that in not putting ourselves first, but in putting you first, and in living for others too? Would you give us that power? Would you give us that strength? Would you give us that grace? In Jesus' name, amen. may I ask you guys to stand as we respond in worship.